Welcome to the LIP, the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, this was a great conversation with a guy called David Hughes. Um, David is the CEO and founder of Mulberry Risk. Mulberry Risk um, offers sort of data, actuarial and analytics services, predominantly to the MGA market. Um, David's a really good guy. He's had an interesting career. Um, started out as a, uh, a rugby player and then it ended up an actuary. Um, and if you don't want to know how that's happened, then um, I don't know what else we can offer you. So this is a good conversation about MGAs, entrepreneurship, um, you know, things like minimum standards and, and applying them to kind of areas that are not inside the kind of Lloyd's framework and how that helps with things like raising capacity and the challenges that MGAs face. Um, particularly in these current times. So if you're interested in entrepreneurship, MGAs, capital raising, then this is a good one for you. Um, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, otherwise known as The Lip. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm lucky to be joined by David Hughes of Mulberry Risk. Uh, Mulberry Risk operates in the kind of analytics space, providing services and products um, to the MGA market um, ostensibly. And um, yeah, well, welcome, David. Oh, thanks, Alex. <laughs> it's, it's great it's great to be here actually yeah yeah no thanks for doing this and um i appreciate um well you were talking me through talk us through your background because uh that mulberry risk sign is uh is hiding some um <laughs> delights <laughs> yeah yeah this is just uh, just as we're all in lockdown and make compromises this is this is the uh bedroom above my garage and and the, and the Mulberry Risk sign is actually hiding a shower, so yeah. <laughs> a little I, I, secret there. I, I, but, I'm, only, I'm only picking you because that's the most professional background anyone's turned up with yet. And um, <laughs> I, love, I love the fact it's hiding a shower. But um, look, um, thank you again for coming. Um, you know, the purpose of this is obviously to talk, talk about leadership and insurance. And, and I wanted to start kind of by just, you know, talking about your route into insurance because the absolute theme of the podcast so far has been that um, people don't tend to have these sort of linear progressions when they end up in these entrepreneurial type uh, environments. Um, and um, just going through your sort of CV, it's kind of quite the hit list of names of the insurance market. Um, BZ Navigators, ARG Chartist, Marsh, um, Barnett Waddington. But um, you you started out as an actuary. Is that is that the sort of career path? Yeah, actually, yeah, one thing I, I not many people know is I started in pensions. When I graduated, uh, moved to moved to Cardiff. Had a professional contract with rugby club in Cardiff, which didn't last very long. Mm. Um, didn't like playing professional rugby. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Well, is that is that is that the era when um, rugby just turned professional? So you're uh -huh. you're getting sort of twenty pounds a game, and right. um, and you weren't learned, allowed to turn up with a hangover. So um, yeah, that that didn't last very long. But yeah, I started off in pensions, pensions consultancy yeah. as a trainee actuary. Um, and it took me a couple of years before I ended up working, probably for someone who's had a huge influence on my career. Um, and I've just forgotten his name, actually. We'll have to edit it in. Yeah, we'll have to edit it in. No, um, no Stephen. It, it is a Stephen. And um, and he he'll, he'll won't forgive me for getting his surname. But um, Stephen uh, was chief actuary of um, Ace Global Market, which at the time was the largest they'd aggregated a load of syndicates together. Mm -hmm. um, and I joined Stephen as his um, chief actuary. I know he was the chief actuary. I, I joined him as an analyst and he got me back in. I'd given up the exams. He got me back into taking the exams, um, convincing me to take the American route, actually, the Casualty Actuarial Society, mm -hmm. um, which are very strong focused exam, technical exams on just general insurance. Yeah. Um, whereas the UK was still heavily at the time pensions and life focused mm. um during that process uh, the three and a half years i was at ace um ace bought uh, the tarquin agency which was john sharman's business yeah so i had the pleasure of working with um with john for a little bit on a number of projects um i had a uh the parts of john team i met and it's my first um i was born in plymouth or brought up in plymouth and to come into the city world and meet with well someone who is uh, who's as phenomenally successful as john sharman yeah was, was a real eye opener, eye opener for me yeah but, and at that moment it, that was quite a key thing to work with john um because i just went wow 
I want to have my own business one day. Yeah. And it, and it just planted that seed. And this was yeah. back in 98, I think. And, um, and then, I, then I followed a girl to New Zealand, um, did some work in New Zealand, came back and I joined Beasley um, as, a, as a pricing actuary um, in, the financial, uh, in the specialty lines under Adrian Cox. Um, and that was just terrific. I mean, if there's one thing about Beasley, um, a lot of the people are still there. Um, which is a credit to that organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they probably are a company that I still would like to model Mulberry on mm-hmm. um, because I think everything they touched was just quality. And t- they have their problems like anyone. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think their professionalism, the way they conduct themselves, um, it's just really outstanding, you know. And, yeah. uh, and I, had, I mean, I didn't know him, but whilst I was there, Andrew Beasley was still, um, still alive and, and at Beasley. I'm running it um, and he and his ethos of the business which was really create a high caliber business which looks after its employees mm. um, which I believe is still instilled in the business today oh, yeah 100% I mean from my perspective as, as someone that works in the recruitment industry uh, for insurance I mean Beasley people are always very very strong you know they're, they're they they hire very very well they look after their people um my friend miria works there at the internal team and i know that you know that there could be harder jobs getting people in i'm not saying she doesn't work i should be very upset <laughs> but, um, but, but what i mean is it, it's a name that carries cachet because i think yeah it's well known how good their people are you know they have some of the best people in the market and, and they do look after them and and i find it frustrating how simple that's you know that that model is it's like get the best people look after them um you know even little things like that. i know yeah. they get their lunches in the travel paid for because they say well we pay you this and we want you to you know earn that um it's 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 very simple but then it's very difficult to do you know keeping people happy is is a challenge it comes from the leadership and i think it also mm. means that they have to make really hard decisions and beasley we're not are not scared of making difficult decisions mm. um so and and a lot of the, you know, in, and I left Beasley to, to join chief, um, Navigators as their international chief actuary. Yeah. Um, and uh, and these, were, these were the days when you could actually be a chief actuary without being qualified. Because I was never, qual- I'm not qualified. I, oh, you're not? That's a, that's a, no, that's another story there. <laughs> oh, we're letting all the secrets out now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, it's like you're, you're opening the sign behind the shower. I was going to say, um, <laughs> the skeletons in the shower are coming out. <laughs> but, um, no, so um, yeah, and, and Navigators was a um, a whole different business. It was a great learning experience um, working for um, the finance director Tracy Lillington there, mm. um, and again another stage. But then I I left Navigators and joined AIG. I wanted to move out of the Lloyd's environment and into mm. um, the big company environment. And AIG was this is two years after the crisis hit. And, um, um, and on my first two weeks of working at AIG, um, my boss was Sarah Maillet, who became CFO of Europe. Um, and I was head of capital management. It was just incredible. It was, mm. it was a company and I, and where I think in part of your induction process, um, I got introduced to the commercial lines director. Um, and, and, Jason, who's the commercial lines director, who's now the CEO over at QBE International, he he said something which always stuck with me at uh, my time at AIG, which is, this is an environment where you can create your career. This is an environment where this there are no boundaries about how far you can go. AIG support that, mm-hmm. and and AIG sometimes is a bit of a madhouse, but yeah. it was it was it was full of incredibly talented people. Um, and over the years since then, a lot of those talented people have left. And, and you'll see them that, that AIG, former senior people in AIG are littered throughout the industry in yeah. senior roles guiding it. And, and it's just, you know, Jason Harris at QBE. Um, you've got Kelly Lyles, who um, I think is um, still at AXA XL. There are just these individuals who are really high caliber people. Mm-hmm. The team that went on to set up Berkshire Specialty. Um, and you know it's just incredible incredible experience at AIG mm. uh, moving into Marsh um, Marsh was a 
probably a step back for me. So I, I moved out more into sort of portfolio management underwriting role yeah. at AIG towards the end there. Um, I had a, um, a role working with Jim Shea at Global Specialty Lines overlooking these portfolios. But then moving to Marsh was step back into the analytics actuarial area. Um, but that was working in a broker world why directly you, with clients. Yeah, why did you make that decision then? Because that's, that's popped up a few times before, people not being scared to kind of take sideways or backwards steps to go forward. Um, what, was, what was behind that sort of decision process? Um, uh, part of it was Marsh offered me uh, quite a bit more money. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Fair enough. laughs> at, at a young family i was doing a lot of travel with aig and yeah. um and this was a lot less travel but also it was to work in a broker environment mm. it was um it, it was a great opportunity to build a team a, a really good opportunity to be much more frontline um and that that was a really big learning experience for me um one, one of the things that i i realized i brought to the table was my international experience of mm being able to run meetings internationally, even just over a telephone call. Having yeah. a, we, we had one client, um, it was a steel client, and we had people dialing in from Argentina, someone from Hong Kong, someone from Africa, and AIG had given me the skills to be able to handle that effortlessly mm. um, and do a PowerPoint presentation over a phone. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. And, Come in handy now. <laughs> it comes in very handy now. <laughs> AI, AIG gave me some of the grounders, but Marsh got me really close to clients. Mm. Whereas AIG, when you're looking at all this, you're quite a long way away. Mm. Um, but with Marsh, we're right there. You could ask for data. Um, we're doing, we're getting some of the information from our clients to help them on understanding their risk and how it fits in their captive. And it's really rich data. Um, Moving forward from that, I joined Barnett Waddingham. And it was at that point I was looking to set up my own firm. Right. Um, and, and then uh, Barnett Waddingham asked me to come and help them launch their London Market GI practice. Um, I did that for a short time. And then that's when I decided to launch Mulberry Risk. Yeah. Um, and ideally, I, I wanted to set up my own MGA because I saw this opportunity to get into that kind of insure tech space. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And use analytics to really drive underwriting. But at the time, I, there was just so many MGAs being created. Mm-hmm. I realized I didn't really have skills, um, advancing capacity. And then it's, it's at that point, I was introduced to a chap called Guy Fraser. Mm-hmm. And you'll see there's a couple of people I've mentioned here. I've been critical. And, and, and Guy Fraser is, uh, you know, one of those people in my, my stepping stone of my, where I am today, who's quite key in that stepping process. Mm-hmm. So Guy's, um, he was a former AIG underwriter, uh, motor, motor fleet. Um, and he set up Century Underwriting yes. um, back in, crikey, when was it? 2000, and, apologies, Guy, if you, if you listen to this. Um, I think it was 2013, I should know, or 12, he set it up. And, and they'd lost their capacity at then 2016. Um, and they'd grown the book. Um, it's a good business. The underwriting had been a little bit challenging uh, in terms of their loss ratios. But I worked with Guy. I brought in a lot of the actuarial disciplines with him. I, I went, joined him as his chief act, um, acting chief operations officer for six months, yeah. um, just as we were searching for new capacity and embedding that into the business. Um, and it was through that process, working with Guy, I really got to understand MGAs. But also I could see the value that I could bring to an MGA. Um, and it was around really allowing them to have access to these skills, which really the reserve of the big insurers i.e., the actuarial skills the data the portfolio management Mm -hmm. um and and if you bring that in and combine that with the really strong underwriting at someone like century you then create a really powerful business yeah but the problem is you're to get those skills you know an actuary isn't cheap Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a significant investment for most mgas and particularly ones who've got five to 15 million pounds of gwp going through it's, it's a really hard to justify that kind of six figure plus salary yeah, of to, to bring that almost a non-producing individual one. Mm. So, so I set up Mulberry risk on that basis to actually really, well, it's my problem, my first pivot in the business to really provide actuarial services and data analytics into niche insurance businesses. Yeah. Um, and so we started moving on that basis. Mm-hmm. Um, took my first employee on um, back in September 2018. 
um and we grew and then we and we really narrowed down on that focus to to really focus on mgas we, we got pulled into a couple of insurer things but we keep now we're 100 percent focused on mgas mm-hmm. um we've worked on well over 40 mgas wow. um annually um we've got you know we've got some really out we've got insure tech clients in there um one of them is you know top of the list insure tech list yeah it's growing rapidly and we're we're very very proud um of having them as a client um we've got um two large mgas london market mgas as clients and then we've got some really small ones as well mm-hmm. um one of my favorites is uh this business has been going about five years, about five or six million pounds of premium goes through it. Um, young lad, he runs it and brilliant team around him. And they're just so entrepreneurial. Yeah, They really are. They're, the speed that they can do things and achieve things is just brilliant. The innovation that they can generate, mm. um, the deals that they can get done. So no, we, and so we provide these services. Um, is, sorry to Into MGAs, yeah. Is that what you like about it? Because, like, I think from someone who's entrepreneur himself, and obviously I've got my own uh, my own business, um, I like the MJ model. I, I, you know, I look at that, and <laughs> I I probably had the same thought process as you. I thought, well, I could bring some talent together. Maybe I could do an MGA, and then I was like, no, I I really can't. Um, but I love the model, um, and I like the entrepreneurial nature of it. So, is that kind of part of the appeal? against because one would imagine it might be potentially more profitable working with some of the bigger entities um is some of the appeal working with these kind of more entrepreneurial more nimble business units yeah definitely um we're we're right in the middle at the moment of um about, about to launch um our own insurance commercial lines pricing platform which is to help uh mgas replace their spreadsheets with a, a professional um cloud-based pricing platform which will have all kinds of wonderful things in it and um, and we're, we're not building this fully by ourselves we're working with a third party and and traditionally they've been working with insurers and their lead time is probably 18 months or so to get a deal across the line really um and and they're just sitting back going wow we can't believe the, the speed mgas move at mm. and one of the reasons and particularly the smaller ones is because you're dealing with the operator owner yeah um you meet them have a quick chat um and they say do you know what this is exactly what i need handshake the contract signed next day yeah. or thereabouts it's it's a very quick decision making process there's no committees mm. and you get things done they're, they're really keen that that also comes down with downsides mm. um, because um it's an expectation of delivery as well mm. so it is a it, it's a much faster and and it's much faster business. And one of the things that we've had to do is, you know, um, we've got some expensive resources in the, in the company and we're, we're, we're currently looking to grow. Um, so if there are any, you know, actuaries and analytical people listening to this, please get in touch. But, um, but via well, me, via me. <laughs> <laughs> what, oh yeah, I forgot you're a recruiter. <laughs> so no. so one, one of the challenges we have is, um, how can we how can we make these services available to to our clients at an affordable price and, and efficiently done as well so what i didn't want is having worked at you know a number of consultancies before um was i don't want to be scaling limited to people so mm-hmm. if we want to take someone on then we have to bring some more hires on now there is a bit we have to do that all businesses have to do that but yeah can we actually create digital processes that are completely scalable yeah Um, and so if we double the amount of clients we have maybe we only need to increase our headcount by 10 percent yeah get that non-linear relationship um Mm. and really leverage technology and so that's what we've worked a lot on sorry is is that is that where you're sort of building products versus um, offering services because because i think That's what I'm seeing. I mean, that seems to be the trend of service industries now is packaging things up that you can kind of take. Um, and I think particularly in the analytics space, because as you rightly touched on, I mean, um, not wanting to bring COVID up, but, you know, you're replacing spreadsheets. There's a, there's a few places that spreadsheets could do with being replaced at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you're dealing with companies that have got no tools. 
So a off-the-shelf tool that is offering them a better sort of pricing model is, is much better than, than nothing. Um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, I just, I've just, it's, it's a trend I'm seeing. People are sort of generating products that people can buy and, and sort of take that off the shelf. And that makes it much easier for a business to grow. Whereas services, you're completely reliant on the number of people that you've got, the physical hands you have. Yeah, so it's, yeah, we're trying to do a quasar model, you know, we're trying to, um, but we have productized what we're offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we do, I mean, oh, yeah, it's always hard. Um, are we an actuarial consultancy? I suppose we, I don't fully like to say we are. Um, we're an MGA consultancy. Yeah, we're, we're focused on that. And we're building out more and more services around that. Now we have a lot of actuarial know-how and expertise that we that we deployed our mgas and our, and we have some non-mga clients um but very limited um but uh you know we we focus on what is it an mga needs now one of the biggest risks that an mga has is losing their capacity that that binder agreement they get from the insurer so what i this is over i we had a couple of issues um, with one of a major client, it all went a bit pear-shaped, but these things happen. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and, and we lost the client and, and I sat down over a weekend, locked myself away with a couple of bottles of red wine and really got thinking, what is it that we're trying to do for our clients? What is it, what is it they need? They're not like an insurer who has to do um, reserving forecasts. They have to bring in actuaries on a regulatory basis. That's not us. What is it we're trying to do? Well, we're actually trying to help the MGA strengthen that bind, that um, that bind, that relationship between them and their insurer. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you want to do that? Well, you do that because you want to protect that capacity agreement. Yeah. And if you can protect that capacity agreement, then that's better for the insurer because they're going to get an MGA they can rely on who can produce results for them. And they're very happy to delegate the authority down. And for the MGA, it gives them security, mm. massive security, because once you lose that binding authority, that that can destroy your business. Mm. Um, and we've seen that unravel in a number of MGAs in the market recently. So I was going to say, is that something you're seeing more of recently because of the rate rises? And so people are sort of adopting the approach of bringing, you know, keeping that capacity to themselves and bringing it in house or. No, there's, there's a number of things. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing with. Um, there's a lot of action taken at Lloyd's. You know, Lloyd's is a is a yeah. big provider of capacity to MGAs and delegated mm-hmm. underwriting authority. Um, Decile 10 activity, which was launched what two years ago, um, is is causing some issues. We are seeing issues with rate ch- rate increases. Um, so a number of your traditional markets in Lloyd's who underwrite MGAs have hit their up, upper premium boundaries now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's putting them under pressure. Um, but it's also just MGAs are just getting a bit of a bad rap. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one of the reasons is, is because there is an expense to running on the MGA. It's almost like a double count of expense. There's quite a few haven't performed in underwriting, but actually um, I think you can argue that a number of insurers haven't performed as well because that's yeah. where the market rates have been. You can't have MGAs performed in line with markets. Probably a lot of them have. Mm. Um, there are a lot. There are a number which haven't, and um, but you know that's that's a state. So we we try to help, we help our MGAs get some of the procedures and benefits of actuarial input. We have our own um, minimum underwriting standards, which are heavily based on the Lloyd's ones, but just mm-hmm. tweaked for an MGA. Mm-hmm. What what makes it relevant to them? Without, so we're kind of trying to put some of these gold standards which come out of Lloyd's and reduce the bureaucracy around that mm-hmm. and help embed that to our uh, Mulberry MGA and which will, with the whole benefit of really strengthening that capacity. And, and I'm going back to your service versus product. Well, we, we call this product capacity protector because um, it, it does what it says on the tin, helps yeah. Yeah. Um, protect. And we keep it, you know, we keep reviewing this. How can we improve it? How can we improve um, that proposition for the MGAs? How can we keep developing that protection? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's certainly been 
you know, the big challenge of the market and, and, you know, timing for us has been pretty good on that. Um, just at this time when MGAs do need the services. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, reputationally it's, it's a really interesting one. I mean, I, I, um, yeah, I, I like the model and, and, and if anyone's got the kind of the books that people tend to be looking to back at the moment in MGAs and, you know, short tail niche products, um, you know, that's, that seems to be the focus of everyone's looking for. Um, I always run it past as an idea if someone's looking and, and you still get some people to go, you know, Lloyd's first, company market second, um, MGA is a, is a distant third um, and they get a bit of a bad rap. But um, I think um, I think unfairly so, because I think, as you rightly said, I think I think there's a big exposure. If, if an MGA performs, poor, you know, performs poorly, um, it's very highlighted because it's a standalone business. Whereas, you know, if you're a division within a massive insurer and you've got poor results we might know but it's probably not as exposed um because i think there's a wealth of opportunity certainly at the moment with the technology services like yours um to really build a kind of first class mga yeah you're right there's no oh god you, you mentioned loads of things there alex which are particularly interesting and relevant to today mm. um so i'll take the first thing which is about the large company and the and capital so an insurer is about capital, managing the capital on the balance sheet. Um, and, you know, it's part of my job at AIG. So part of this is where do you deploy that capital to get the optimum return? So every company which has got assets to deploy to get return on has to look at that. Now, say you're sitting at AIG and you're going, right, I've got this business line over here. They've got 200 million and, and all the numbers every it's one of the things that took me a little while when I left AIG was to get used to smaller numbers. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it was like, there's 200 million in this product line over there. Um, and that's supported by this amount of capital. We're not getting the return. So let's cut that or let's reduce it by 50%. Well, you, your fixed expenses are so significant mm. that that doesn't really solve anything. Mm. so you're kind of stuck into this volume play or and even if you have got the volume play you can't you even if you let people go you, you've still got six nine months of cost and mm -hmm. now if you were to take that the same position with an mga you just give them 30 days notice and say we've cut your capacity um and you haven't got the you've got the overhead of the the liabilities you've underwritten mm. but you can handle those in a different way portfolio transfers and stuff but but actually your fixed cost you've your, your expenses are completely variable with that business. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, also your, your performance management is much more specific. And so if you, and you're seeing a number of businesses pop up, which are just looking to manage capital yeah. and work with MGAs mm -hmm. and deploy that capital. And, and the great thing you always want to do when head of capital management, which I reports to treasury or the CFO, they're always looking to create make sure the capital's fungible. And that means moving the capital around. Can you move it? And, and the more fungible your capital is, the more you can react to the market. Mm -hmm. And MGAs give so many benefits for that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at why MGAs, some MGAs haven't performed, is due to they don't have the some of the in-house skills, they have great underwriting, great distribution. They didn't write necessarily have the support around actuarial and portfolio management. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have the oversight from the insurer. And, and it, um, and we've learned some more things actually working in that relationships rather than oversight. Let's make it more collegiate. Yeah. You know, sometimes MGA say, look, we haven't got all the answers. We've got distribution. Mm -hmm. We've got good underwriters. We've got good data. Mr. Insurer, just help us a little bit here. Yeah. And so, because we all want that same outcome yeah. and it's a, uh, you know, it's a phenomenally exciting place to be a good quality MGA. Mm. And that's, that's one of the things we're seeing. And certainly my clients, um, the Mulberry Risk client, our clients are, when they engage with us, they, they, they're making a statement to the insurer. We want to take a step towards improving the quality of our business. Yeah. Um, and that's a really good message. And we, we do everything we can to help them along that. Yeah. Um, not saying we're perfect, and we're, but we really try to, we yeah. really try to invest and in our R and D to help do that. So we've got we've got things like we've got a large database of information mm -hmm. that we can benchmark our MGAs against. We've got 
um, techniques and methodologies that really help shore them up mm. to really demonstrate that they are a high caliber unit and mm. worthy. And this is a really big different concept worthy of the insurer, the owner of that capital to lend their capital to the MGA to deliver a return. Mm. And that's, yeah, I mean, do you, is it just the UK that you're focusing on at the moment? Is there plans to kind of, or, or are there clients in other territories at the moment? Yeah, we've got we've got some US stuff, um, and we've got um, we're a little bit in Australia at the moment. Um, yeah, and we're talking to, to North America. Um, we, yeah, I think we've just focused. We've got we've got some really good. <laughs> we've got a lot of clients, <laughs> and, and we're always open for more. Um, yeah. And but at the moment, uh, some of our clients are, are growing at such a rapid rate because mm. they've got the MGA model correct. They, they've, they're delivering service. They're managing their underwriting. Yeah. Um, we're helping them manage their relationship, with their capacity in, in forecasting loss ratios. We're helping improve their pricing, mm-hmm. support their underwriting decisions. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. there's just a, um, I mean, one of our, one of our top, clients i mean both of them actually are top two clients um in the mga space i think are growing at 50 percent during wow. lockdown i mean they've mm-hmm. just really accelerated and they can implement things very quickly mm-hmm. so while your big insurers and even yeah some of your big insurers and even some of the newest startups to the table um they're, they're slow to move and take advantage of the changes in the market take advantage of new technologies mm. and really adopt so no it's great and you know and the people in the mga world are most are a lot of fun yeah they're, they're much more entrepreneurial they've got um a bit of a distribution focus but they also have a lot of pride because they're smaller businesses compared to an insurer there's yeah. a lot more ownership there yeah of course of so course yeah, I, I really like the model. I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot this year on, on and and, and in, the reason I'm asked about America, because it's interesting that the capacity uh, relationship is slightly different. They tend to commit for longer terms, um, whereas noticeably in the UK, it sort of t- seems to be everything's under review every 12 months. And, and, and I thought that's, I don't know if that says anything about the kind of business culture in the UK, but it certainly seems more helpful to have a kind of longer term play in the US kind of um, way, uh, because you've still got controls on that capital, you've still got performance, you know, criteria on it. Um, and it's not like it can't be pulled, it can be pulled if, if, it, if it's way off, but kind of having that longer term commitment um, makes it much easier to be effective, move quicker. Um, whereas it's every 12 months, knowing that your capacity could be pulled is quite, um, I'm not sure I'd want to live on that on that knife edge really <laughs> that that's that's one of the biggest issues our mjs have mm. so we're, we're 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 working with um a broker at the moment to try and get a solution in for our clients around that yeah. because even if you've got a, a rolling contract binder agreement um an evergreen one or you've got you know and and the many of the annual ones are because they're through Lloyd's that that's what drives it and that drives yeah. the kind of London market mm-hmm. behavior um and but um you know we we want to try and get we're trying to get a facility in place and whether we can get it or not I don't know but which can almost give a guarantee that mm. you know we put a capacity protector guarantee around this then if you're a capacity protector client as an MGA and you lose your capacity then there's some capacity to come in, which will come in for a period of time whilst you get stuff fixed and find new capacity. Or So because it, even with an evergreen, you've got 30 days notice often. Or I mean, no one, no other, I don't know any other industry which would be happy with that relationship. <laughs> something that can snap and just kill your business. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other ways of mitigating. You know, you, you don't have just one carrier, you have multiple carriers. Of course. Multiple carriers only make sense when you're a certain size. You know, I mean, but um, my view often it depends on class of business. But you know, once you you need to get up to sort of five to ten million with one carrier, yeah. ideally. Um, yeah. And the reason why you need to do that is because you need to focus on growing and building your business. Managing those carrier relationships, particularly in the early days, is really hard work. Mm. Um, and every carrier you bring on. 
um, will require a lot of focus. And in the end, you'll spend all your time managing and carry relationships mm. and not focused on your business. Mm. So don't so that, you know, the best mitigation to losing your capacity is sometimes make sure you're not losing, <laughs> make sure you're, you're meeting your underwriting targets. But yeah, that's sure. not always that's not always play sailing. But um, and, and that's not always the reason why you lose capacity either. Mm. Um, but it's to, you know, get two, three carriers on board. Um, but then you need to be certain size. So there's always there's a risk. There's always a trade off. And um, and, you know, we, we try to help our clients understand that strategy a bit and how they can mitigate it. Yeah, yeah, um, certainly. I, I mean, that's certainly all the, always the kind of barrier that I'm presented with. If, if, if people don't have a business plan that says, you know, five to 10 million on it, 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 it's not big enough to be interesting for a lot of carriers anyway, that, you know, they're not willing to deploy the capital. It does, doesn't have the scale. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a constant challenge. So I, I'm interested that the way that you framed the business in providing services to MGAs more than an actuarial consultancy, for example, um, and um, so what's, what's, what do you see down the line? You sort of hinted at something there. I think that's really interesting hearing that, actually, the sort of all that almost sort of capacity, I don't know what you would call it, kind of fail-safe. It seems a really good service and idea. Um, yeah, but quite, kind of, sort of. I mean, we're, we're still, you know, it probably won't happen until early next year, but mm. yeah, we call it, call it a capacity protector guarantee. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that we can give you some sort of warranty because you – through working with us, we can see that you meet certain standards. Yeah. Um, yeah. Additionally, around this, we also have our mobile minimum underwriting standards based heavily on Lloyd's, but adapted for MGAs. Mm-hmm. So we can help grade an MGA against those standards, help them identify areas which are critical. So again, moving the quality of this MGA up um, to make them a more robust business and more appealing to an M- um, and insurer mm. um the future um we just want to continue you know we've got our tech pricing technology platform to go into mgas mm. um we, we and support them what we see an mga is really good at is distribution yeah um and and getting efficient strong distribution um and and with some with the underwriting now surround that as well but that's what we really see. So getting a, a well underwritten, strong distribution portal is what the MGA delivers mm. to um, your big carrier. And, but also is the ability to be very agile in that. So they can reflect the changes in the market very, very quickly. Mm. Um, a lot of the MGAs didn't really struggle with working from home in the no. lockdown. No, Instead, no, no. Almost overnight, they were able to work from home. Yeah. Um, Whereas your Aviva's really struggled, the RSAs, um, their customer service, their broker service levels dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because they're such big beasts. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas the MGAs are very agile and they were able to maintain those customer service levels to their brokers and customers. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We're, we're seeing the kind of rise in the, in the sort of small business anyway. Obviously, COVID's kind of driven some of that. As, like recently i mean people have had yeah. to be entrepreneurial sadly um but i think we were starting to see that anyway people were niching down and even product lines you know it, it, it's not enough to say you know you do a broad product suite now you have to go right we are the best at this very specific class of business um and we've identified a problem that we're going to deliver a solution to um how much of the kind of um i know you touched on the kind of insure tech world um we were having a conversation before this started about defining what, what on earth that means. Um, but the kind of MGA um, insure tech play, um, do you think we're going to keep seeing more of that as the kind of appetite run out? Or is that, that just like continuing in niche products versus niche technologies is just going to enhance the need for that? Yeah. Um, okay. I, I, the areas where I've seen it work really well, and it's certainly our our client who who are just outstanding at this, is around digital distribution. Yeah, um, really focusing on the customer journey and using tech to really make an outstandingly good customer journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that also means about measuring it. It means about you know that that's that whole ecosystem around that. Um, that those are the ones which are 
uh, uh, being really successful. Mm-hmm. Where we haven't seen so much success are the insure techs who um, are trying to come in and fix underwriting results. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's there are those who've had investment and it's kind of bubbling really. It's mm-hmm. um, and and so that's a lot harder to demonstrate. And I think one of the challenges around that is sales is always quite instant and, and you could take your cut out of the sales and you can grow and um whereas improving underwriting results is a lot harder to fully demonstrate your value yeah um, even though it's probably for a lot of the insurers is probably more important in a number of ways mm. um but it's a lot more challenging it's not simple um so yeah and and then there's some there's in so there's insure text where it's going to try and solve big problems and and the other ones which I think are interesting are the ones who are trying to just focus on little things. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there's one which I I know that you know, in short, they're not a client. I'd love them to be a client, and they should be. <laughs> um, Flood Flash, um, and with Flood Flash, the um, the parametric, you know, that's an insurtech led thing. It's, yeah. uh, but it's also is combining technology with a parametric insurance policy, which is just brilliant. There's yeah. no, um, and Ola Jacob, who's there, who's a, a good friend of mine um, and an outstanding individual. He tells this story about um, a client who got flood flash in. And I don't know if you know how flood flash works. You get this tube stuck outside your, your house mm-hmm. or shop yeah. and if the flood water goes up to a certain level, you get a fixed payout. So if you buy half a meter flood level and you say, I want 10,000 yeah. pounds, they'll calculate the price of that. And you say, yeah, I'll have that. So there's very, the policy conditions are so simple. Mm. There's no adjustment. It is, has it been triggered? Yes. Here's your money. And it's quick. So I there like, was a sh- I like the idea of that being like a, a flood fruit machine. Like, <laughs> yeah. watching, you know, oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what this also means is simplifies the whole idea of risk. Mm. And so what I saw, so the story that Ola tells me, and he may have changed this, and if I've got it wrong, Ola, I apologize. <laughs> but he, he talks about the story of a shop that got Flood Flash installed. And, um, and then they bought, let's say, 50 centimeters trigger. Mm. And, um, and, and then they had a payout. Now, what this shop then did was they moved everything on their floor up 50 centimeters. Right. So, so the excess in the policy wasn't a financial amount. The excess in the policy was then a physical excess level. So this shop said, I am protected up to half a meter. And so, so, I, so I really like that. I, I thought we're now putting excesses into physical things we're encouraging a shopkeeper in this situation to make risk changes to their book now there's loads of ways you can look at this there could be other you know anti-selection things but just that one story all of a sudden to me combine insure tech new insurance um policy and wording mm. plus just a really simple approach a really good customer outcome mm. who the customer now understands what the excess means it yeah. means I move all my goods off the floor up half a meter. Yeah. And yeah, but, but that's, that's in the same way that kind of, I think health is being looked at, isn't it? If you, if you take the NHS or, or even health insurance, the focus has always been on when something happens, we pay you some money rather than sort of, you know, preventative measures. And, and a lot of that is about simplicity. So a lot of the sort of move on the health insurers to sort of go towards, um, you know, if you go to the gym four times a week, we'll make your we'll we'll make your payments reduced. Yeah. You know, it's the same sort of. Uh, I mean, give me some rope there, but there's a similar similar sort of like um, pathway in that. I think insurance is overly is often overly complicated. Is often too focused on kind of replacement or, or repayment. Um, I use the analogy that I was I was burgled and in London um, and. You know, having worked insurance a long time, I knew the process worked, and and, and I got paid out, and it was fine. It's just a really long process, and actually, yeah. I would have much preferred a kind of, if just wanted it to be simpler, and I would have taken a hit financially on that 
to just kind of get on with my life. You know, I did, it wasn't, it was just like, right, I've lost a load of stuff. If I had a sort of payment mechanism attributed to that, it'd be much, much, much better for me. Um, and so I think you're, I think you're right. And that's where, that's where the focus on the customer, that's why I think in Shortex, focusing, focusing on the customer journey, the customer experience mm. and driving it out of that. And that will drive um, changes in the underwriting, changes in, I mean, we're, we're just doing our house insurance and, you know, and one of the questions, and we're doing it for a broker now, but one of the questions is, when was your house built? I was like, well, this part of it was built in 1600. Yes. Um, you know, it, it was yeah, built yeah. between 1600 and 2010. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, what do we put? <laughs> yeah. and, and my wife was looking, she said, well, you work in insurance. What, what do we put? And I went, let's, let's just tell the broker we don't really what does he want us to put <laughs> and and so it's you know there, there are some really difficult questions um policy wordings are complicated because of you know if it's not excluded then it's on risk in yeah. a way um and it's the and it's not the 90 percent of good people it's just the people who are always trying to get one over the insurer really yeah. um and that's why the policy so there's there's a lot of work but i think in my view, the insurtechs who are really making success are the ones who are trying to focus on the, the customer experience and journey. Mm. And, um, and they'll figure out the underwriting behind that. So if you look at Lemonade, that's their, been their approach. Bought by many, that's their approach. Um, you know, you, you can, Zigo was about the customer journey yeah. and the outcome. Um, and, and their customer their customer was actually delivery. That's where the yeah. guys came out of. Yeah, cool. And delivery wanted to get more and more riders on, but they couldn't get the riders on the scooters because commercial insurance was too expensive. Yeah. So they created the app, which integrated and made it easy for the riders, easy for delivery. And they solved the problem for that customer experience. Mm. Um, that bought by many customer journey is just so nice and simple. And with a real focus on the customer and their pet owner and what they can do for the pets and, and make this experience better for them. Mm. Um, is it perfect? No, but the fact is that they actually talk about it and that's what their focus is. Yeah. So, you know, these are successful insurtechs. Um, and I think the other ones are, are struggling because they, they just take more investment and more, more yeah. challenge to, and, and, and ultimately a lot of insurance is about the law of large numbers. You know, mm -hmm. these are the claims that happen. If you allocate it over there, you're still going to get all these claims. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was talking about that with um, um I interviewed Marcus Malbach of uh, RiskX and yep. the parametric solution. And yeah, he said, you know, what, what he was talking about is some of these risks is when the law of large numbers doesn't apply, then it ceases to be insurance or, or you know, if it's so expensive, for example. And um, yeah, there was a huge kind of focus on that. Um, but the insurer tech landscape is, is yeah, I, I, I see, see exactly the same things as you. You either are targeting a very specific niche and, and, and solving a very small, potentially small problem, or, or you're absolutely focused on the customer, which I think insurance has lost sight of. Um, but one of my views that I've always had is that, you know, investments are obviously necessary to get you to a certain point, but you can take too much. Um, and if you yeah, take yeah. too much, you're then putting yourself in the position that your niche, for example, may not be big enough to return on that investment. So you've kind of you you might have solved one small niche problem, which is your USP. If you take too much investment, if that USP isn't a big enough area to provide enough return, then you then start diluting your offering, and then you sort of get away from what the solution you were trying to do in the first place. Um, and it's just it's just a risk. Um, but, you know, finding out what is the right amount, um, you know, because the, the contrary thing is to take investment without taking enough. Um, what's the point? You're, yeah, yeah. It's the most expensive equity you ever sell is, the, is those first uh, investments. So, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, the, you know, we haven't had investment at uh, Mulberry. Um, and, and that's been, you know, so apart from everything, I've tried to scrape together and stick in and, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and we've raised debt and things like that. But, um, and there's a part where, I mean, there's loads of um, stories, aren't there? Simon Sinek talks about why and the Wright brothers yeah. and um, going against basically the American government and all the money they had. 
Um, one of the, um, there's a chap called Ian Atkinson who I came across and he wrote the Financial Times book on business writing. He's a copywriter. Mm-hmm. Um, really highly recommend his books. Um, and one of the books he writes is sort of 12 ideas on innovative or creative thinking. Yeah. Um, and he bases a lot of this on the stuff done by Edward de Bono. This is not a lecture, but, um, <laughs> and, but one of the things is about restrictions. Mm-hmm. So restrict yourself. So, and you can look at this in many areas uh, where if you take, if you put constraints about what you can do. So if you think about BlackBerry's dominance in the phone market, and we always talk about the iPhone and how innovative it was, but almost it's like we want to maximize the screen. So if we maximize the screen, we throw away the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So how do, we ma- how do we operate the phone without a keyboard? Yeah. That's our constraints. And that's how almost that innovation, I'm not saying that is how it came about, that's kind of an example. But No, no, no. And, and sometimes I think going back to your thing, sometimes the innovation comes when you're forced to have constraints and constraints can be funding as well mm-hmm. because you've got to find the harder path you, you can't just go oh we'll just go and buy that can't we can just buy that it's just much more you have to fight a lot mm-hmm. more and you have to be a lot more creative to get to that solution mm-hmm. um and work harder and there's um yeah it's so i agree with you sometimes but it comes to a point where the business doesn't need investment to really start flying once they've sorted out that business model um and i think you know, we've seen that in a couple of businesses which have hooked onto something. And you'll see in the early days, they actually achieve so much. They have this yeah. small dynamic team, superstar team who achieves so much. Okay, it's held together with sellotape and, <laughs> and just about functioning. Yeah, yeah. And actually, they say, oh, we built this in three months. And they probably did. Mm. Um, and then they get a big load of investment. And then it all kind of loses a bit of its way because mm. um, it, it's just got a bit too much investment. <laughs> then they're spending on football tables and um, away days. and uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Office space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we work space you can't use. But um, look, David, I'm really conscious that I took up more of your time than I said I would. So um, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll end it there. But um, thank you so much for your time. I really Never a pleasure, it. Alex. And um, yeah, where can, um, so people can find you on the Mulberry Risk website, but um, if, if, if there are any actually listening and don't want to go through me and they do want to go directly <laughs> to David, is it uh, approach you on LinkedIn? Have you got ads up on or just? Yeah, yeah, LinkedIn and, um, and mulberryrisk.com. Um, yeah. And we're always happy, you know, to help people in the market as well. Um, we do have a masterclass series um, and I need to pick that up again, but you know, we, we do like to share a lot of stuff as well. Great. Well, if you've got a link for that, I'll put it in the link notes to the video. But um, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate Pleasure, it. Pleasure, Alex. Cheers. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Leadership Insurance Podcast, otherwise known as The Lib. Um, that was David Hughes. Um, really good conversation. Still not quite sure that he made the right choice between rugby and insurance, but um, he's been very successful, so uh, probably he has. Um, thank you for listening through to the end. Um, if you've got this far, then hopefully you'll do me one more favour, and that's please like or share uh, this content, however you're either listening or looking at it. Um, it really, really helps. I've been very lucky so far. We've had some kind people come come on and give me their time to um, come on the podcast and interview with me and we continue to bring you more interesting stories but the more eyes and ears we have on those stories then the better guests we'll continue to be able to get so um, thank you very much for listening Um, all the best have a great day bye